is Appetite for Distortion. Welcome to the podcast, Appetite for Distortion, episode 177. It is Brando. Thanks for hanging out again on this Guns N' Roses-themed podcast. And today is going to be a fun episode, as we have in studio Michael Alago. And this is just where our six degrees of GNR bacon has, has taken us. And you, the AFT Show listener, you are amazing. You have suggested guests and you get involved in the episodes, whether it be on the actual episode being a co-host or just your, your commentary on social media. You contribute to each and every episode. But it makes me feel really, really good when a, a former guest suggests a guest. That means they had such a good time on my show, they want one of their buddies to come on. And they, they know the audience. They know what I'm about by that time. So they know the perfect guest and that leads us to, again, today, uh, Michael Alago, and it was Peter Napoliello, who we interviewed back in episode 144, who used to work for Geffen. And today's guest, Michael Alago, also worked for Geffen. Oh, with yes, you. Peter. And doesn't he live in, like, Croatia right now? <laughs> yeah. He does. That's yeah. right. And oh, he does, he's lovely. Yeah. He's not a, a big name if you are not in the industry. And a lot of my listeners sure. loved his episode and loved his insight. And he suggested you should get this guy, Michael Alago, on the on the show. And forgive me, I, I, I wasn't aware of, of who you were and everything that you've done. I know there's some. I don't like always to say, "Oh, there's an age gap." Just because I'm 36 doesn't mean I know about. I don't know about dinosaurs or, you know, Noah's Ark. I know about things before me, but I didn't know about your story. And he's like, "My Netflix is on uh, his Netflix. His uh, documentary is on Netflix." Sure. And that's when I, I reached out to you first, and I just saw it, watched your trailer. Uh, and actually, at the time, I didn't know it was on Netflix. He just said you had a documentary. And I didn't know where I could find it. So I watched the trailer. I'm like, this guy is great. He's got such an accent. And uh, as a native New Yorker, I I, I feel akin to uh, when somebody has a, I don't know. Because you're old school, too. You grew up in Brooklyn? I grew up in Brooklyn. And uh, I left Brooklyn when I was 21 years old. And I've lived in the city ever since. And I just turned 60, believe it or not. Happy birthday. Thank you. October. Uh, And uh, here we are. Because my family is from, I mean, I, I mean, I lived there until I was one and a half. So I don't know if that gives me any Brooklyn street cred. No, <laughs> my family comes from Brooklyn, so right. I, don't know, I feel like. But I where have, did you move to after one and uh, a half? Baldwin Harbor, Long Island. Oh, Baldwin, is yeah. that like on the train? Baldwin, Freeport, yeah. Merrick. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I know that. I know that route from days gone by. That's it. So uh, I had reached out to you. And it, you were very receptive, and I really appreciate mm, it. Of course. And you're like, did you watch my documentary? And I have Netflix. I have Hulu. I, I just I thought it was on Amazon. I think that's what Peter said. And, well, and now it, it's on Amazon Prime Video as well. And you said, well, we should also say the, the name of the documentary. Am I we, allowed to curse? Yeah, you are. I don't like to curse. In 2020, I was giving up cursing. But uh, the doc, yeah, sure. The documentary is called "Who the Fuck Is That Guy?" The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago, and it's directed by Drew Stone and produced by Michael Alex. When you told me it was on Netflix mm-hmm. after we got off the phone, um, maybe like a month ago, I put it on. Great. And I knew that the 
the main backdrop to the story is, and part of the reason why you're here today and why you have a book coming out is because you are the guy that signed Metallica. Sure. Summer of 1984 to Electro Records, right after I saw them at Roseland. I mean, it no longer exists, unfortunately. I know, I know. Because uh, we have no respect for, I don't know, historic sites in New York. You would have thought that a building like that, with that's been there over 50 years, with an extraordinary lineup of music, someone would have landmarked the building. I mean, I we could use as many music venues as possible in New York, and no one did. It came tumbling down, and now some friggin' glass tower condo is up. I'm hateful. It all, I mean, I'm, I've been to Roseland, but not to see, I've seen the epic shows that you have seen. I felt that way after CBGB's. Oh, well, yeah. You know, I mean, it's... Oh, so wait, you you went to CB's back no, in the I, day? No, I've never even went to CB's. <gasps> I mean, I'm only 36. Oh, I, right. I, you know, I never went back. But okay. I'm saying I've, it's a place that I've always wanted to go, mm-hmm. you know, uh, well, you know it's and, and never had the opportunity. Uh-huh. I always tell people when they tell me that they're either too young or they were in New York at the time, uh, keep in mind, sometimes technology is our friend, and you could go to YouTube, sure, and you sure. could pull up... Dead Boys, 1977, and you're going to get an extraordinary Dead Boy show. I mean, so there's so many things like that that people taped back in the day and that you didn't even know that they were taping. And uh, you really get an eyeful, an earful, a mouthful sometimes. Uh, and you could see extraordinary things back of uh, shows from back then. And that's what your documentary, and I know your book is going to do, is is mm-hmm. to paint the picture of the, these extraordinary things that happened that just can't happen in today's climate for you know, oh, X not amount of reasons. Yes, not at all. You know, New York has gotten so gentrified and homogenized that all those things back in the day, those little clubs, the places you stayed out until 4 a.m. until, and it just doesn't exist that way anymore. I don't think, anyway. How did you, because it could be, like, you look at today's youth, and oh, look at me. I'm saying today's youth, like I'm an old man sure. on, on the lawn, and seeing what are they going to do with, to find music, and how did you first find music? Mm-hmm. You know, who were the influences to kind of push you along the path that you've been on? Sure. Well, to answer your question, um, I always loved music. Uh, I think I mentioned in the first chapter of my book, I came out of the womb loving music. And uh, I would watch these shows on television, Dick Clark's American Bandstand and Don Cornelius' Soul Train. And uh, uh, what was the other show that was so great? What was this? Why am I thinking something gold? Oh, well, solid gold. I think that was a lot of disco. Okay. Which is fine, but that that wasn't (laughs) one of the things that influenced me. Uh, Oh, come on. What was the other... Because you're naming the ones that I know. You know, American Bandstand. Midnight and... Special. Oh, okay. <sighs> Finally. Okay. See, I told you there was something the matter with my brain when we were <laughs> not taping. You've lived um, too much life. You can't I remember I lived too everything. much life. That is correct. Um, so I watched all those shows, and all those shows had a variety of artists on them, from, you know, Three Dog Night to mm-hmm. Aretha Franklin to David Bowie uh, to Grand Funk Railroad. And all those sounds kind of influenced me. And I was really glad that I got to hear a variety of music at a very young age. And uh, I used to go visit my dad in Manhattan. He worked um, at a municipal workers union on Astor Place. And on that corner, there was a small 
I don't know if it was an international newsstand, but they had a lot of stuff. And um, I don't know how I even remembered or knew how to pick up the Village Voice. And in the Village Voice, there were listings for music and art and theater and porn. And I loved them all. So (laughs) I would go to the back pages and I would see listings for Max's Kansas City and CBGB. And for a short amount of time on Bleecker Street, there was a club called On the Rocks and... uh, 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 a7 and uh, Great Gildersleeves, Max's Kansas City, if I didn't already say that, and CB's. Um, so I saw all these ads. And if I saw names that just kind of appealed to me, I just went. And um, I was young. I was underage. I was 15, 16 years old. And back in the day, uh, nightclubs didn't card you at all. It was all very loose. Um Specific to CBGB, you know, Hilly Crystal, the owner, would let all us young kids in, and he would say, you can come in. If I see alcohol in your hand, you're out for Mm. two weeks. And it was like a suspension. Um, (laughs) So what we all did was we would take beer and bring it all to the back alley and then open that door in the back of CB's, chug everything, throw the cans back down, close the door, and we would act like, you know, nothing happened. (laughs) Uh, But half the times we all wound up being tanked by the time we left CB's. Um, But what was your question again? (laughs) It's... It's the what you did as as a fifteen year old, and it's not like I want to encourage other fifteen year olds now to go out and underage drink. But it's all about finding music. No, so yes. it's, back in the day, and even now, I always go out to look for music. That was the point when I was fifteen, sixteen years old. I just wanted to escape Brooklyn, even though there was Lamore, which was mm. seven blocks from my home. That's another one, which I went to all the time. I, I hear so much of oh, Lamore, and I, I, I've. Mm-hmm. You know, I hate being from here and not having experienced these places mm-hmm. in their in their heyday. I mean, I can't blame time, you know, or, you know, when my parents got together, it is what it is. But that's why I love your documentary. Oh, good. You know, you're, it's like boots on the ground. You're there. Oh, yes. And that's what I was wondering. I'm like, oh, is, it's his documentary. Is it going to be narrated? Is it going to be, you know, uh, just his friends talking about him? But well, you were there. There, there, are a lot of to- there are a lot of talking heads in the movie. And, uh, but I did want to you know, tell my own story. And I didn't want Drew to just make a a music documentary about me because I just felt if we were going to spend all that time and we were going to talk to Cindy Lauper and John Lydon and James Hetfield and Rob Zombie and all the artists that are in the movie, it had to be broad. It had to have a wide spectrum. So I wanted to talk about music and art and theater and addiction and recovery and health. And, you know, here I am in 2020 just thriving from all those horrible things that I went through. But um, here we are. I had no idea, uh, not to take a sharp uh, turn, but how close you were to death. Twice, yeah, in the early 90s, yeah. And it's in the documentary you had about with AIDS? That's correct. And that's before we really had medicine to help? That's right, right. yes. Um, I got sick, uh, hmm, I don't know, I'm terrible with time, but maybe a year or so before there were any medicines out there. But I had a doctor, her name was Barbara Starrett, and she was on the forefront of medicine. And um, when I got really sick, she wanted me to go to the AIDS ward in St. Vincent's Hospital, and I refused to go. I just felt if I went there, that would be my death. So she didn't like the idea that I was going to stay home, but I did. And uh, in the very beginning, all I got administered were 
IV vitamin drips and um, some pills they got from like Mexico or somewhere. You know, I always say in a lot of the interviews when people talk to me about this, it was like Dallas Buyers Club. Mm. Anything goes. People were scared. Um, I don't even know if we were hopeful then. We were just scared. So... um, Barbara would give me these pills, and the beauty about her is uh, she would come to my home like 5 o'clock in the morning on her bicycle before she had her rounds at the hospital, and it was really a very encouraging and beautiful thing that she did that all the time for me. And I was very, very sick for about a year on my sofa, and uh, people were coming to, you know, they don't want to say that they were coming to say goodbye to me, but it was very, uh, it was very heartbreaking. It was very touching, and I was very sick, and... um, I guess about a year or so later, like one of the first medicines came out called AZT. And my doctor said, you know, as your primary care physician, I need to just tell you about AZT, but I don't want you to take it. And I said, you know what, Barbara, I'm going to do whatever you tell me. And I didn't take it. And all my friends who took it died. And then not too far later, there was something I believe called sequinavir. I started taking it. I started getting my strength back. I was back at Electra Records. I was very, very skinny. And of course, it's the 90s and people still talk like, oh, you know, he was very sick. But, you know, I didn't really care. And, you know, after that time period, I just... uh, I started getting better, uh, but I still drank and I still did drugs, which really, you know, how silly of me when I think about it. Um, but now I've been sober almost 13 years and my health is great and I have bouts every so often and, um, you know, all the meds and all the drinking, they kind of screwed up my brain a bit and um, that's why I'm very forgetful and sometimes I have trouble <laughs> with sentences, but, um, you know, I just use what I got and here we are. Well, you're you're putting it all down in a documentary, or yes. you have, and uh-huh. you're, you're putting it all down in a book. So, sure. if you ever struggle, you have your own words right right in front well, of you. Well, you know, it's funny. I was uh, very lucky that I don't know why a young kid from Brooklyn would have done this, but I kept journals as a very young child, teenager. Um, Maybe I started when I was about 15 years old, and there was nothing creative or poetic about it. It was just listings. Took the B train from Brooklyn into Manhattan, went to CBGB. Uh, There were three nights of the damned and the dead boys at CBs. Definitely have to go. Uh, You know, just that's what it was for years was listings until it did get poetic and until it got crazy and until it got uh, drunk journal writing. so I wound up having, uh, I wound up getting a co-writer. Her name is Laura Davis Channon, and she wrote a book also called uh, The Girl in the Back. And we started talking because I knew I didn't have it in me to make the book on my own. I just didn't have that discipline. Uh, so she helped a lot, but we referenced the journals all the time. And it does come out sounding like me in the book. And there's lots of great stories in there that, aren't in the movie at all because you only have so much time right. making a documentary and that was like 77 minutes and uh, now we have a, a wonderful book and I even feel after not just the documentary not just after the book uh-huh. but even after this conversation I'm still going to be like wait there's still so much more uh, from you I want to talk about oh good <laughs> but the, I know we're jumping around a bit because sure. you mentioned that you're you were at Electra when you were sick but your story and we alluded to it before. Did it start at Geffen professionally? Like, how did you get there? How did I get to... Did your oh, professional well, career start at Geffen? No, or wh- where no did not, it start? oh, not at all. It started 
1980 at the Ritz, which is, everyone knows these days, is Webster Hall. That's right. Um, I say this in the documentary as well. I was uh, taking lunch one day. I walked down East 11th Street. I saw a beautiful building. It said, uh, I don't remember if it said video club opening or dance club opening, one of the two. It was just on a white piece of paper. And I thought, oh, this sounds really cool. So I went in. And uh, at that time, I didn't know how beautiful that building was because it's an Art Deco building from the 20s. And... uh, I just looked around, and then there was a gentleman in the balcony that was like, kid, what do you want? We're not even open yet. And I was like, well, I, I would love a job here. It's such a beautiful building. And he just like looked at me like, uh, well, we're not even open yet, and do you have a resume? I said, I do not have a resume. I go to the School of Visual Arts, and I uh, work at a pharmacy. So I don't know. He chuckled at that, and he called me up to his office, and uh, his name was Jerry Brandt. I didn't know that he was a... Uh, uh, this entrepreneur who used to work with Sam Cooke and Muhammad Ali and okay. discovered Carly Simon and the voices of East Harlem. And uh, so we just had a conversation <laughs> like we're having now. And we talked about everything from the Great American Songbook to whatever was happening in the 80, oh, 1980, uh, late 70s, early 80s. Um, and uh, he liked me and he said, you know what? I'm going to give you a job. You're going to open my mail. You're going to answer my phone and you're going to get my lunch. <laughs> and I just thought, oh my God, I'm in the music business. <laughs> well, you know, it was a star. Yeah, yeah. So I was Jerry's assistant for three years. Um, I learned very quickly. I was a sponge and I listened to all of his conversations that he had with booking agents. And at some point I learned how to book a nightclub that held, I don't know, about 1,500 people or so. And I did that for three years, and it was wonderful. Um, But then I also knew there was more out there. And that more uh, turned out to be... um, I was going out with somebody named Mitchell Krasnow, and he said, Michael, you know, my dad is leaving Warner Brothers, and he's going to restart Elektra. Uh, Elektra was in the shitter back then, uh, bad management at the very end, and... uh, Bob Krasnow went there, oh, chairman, uh, to restart Electra, and I was like the first person he interviewed. And I had that same conversation with Bob that I had with Jerry Brandt, music. But Bob was a little more broad because he had great art on his walls. He knew about the scene that was happening in the East Village, and he just was an art maven. So we also talked about art. And after that one-hour conversation, he said, I'll give you a call. And about two weeks later, he called, and he says, I'm going to give you a job. Hmm. And I thought, oh, my God, this is incredible. And he said, you're going to be in the A&R department. The only problem was I had no idea what A&R meant. <laughs> so I had to ask a few of my friends, and um, A&R stands for Artists and Repertoire. Uh, I believe it's the most important part department of a record company, because if you don't have great records, there is nobody, there is nothing to promote right. at the label. So... Um, uh, I started there, hmm, let's see, I don't know, sometime in 1983, and same thing. Bob allowed me to listen in on his phone calls with lawyers, musicians, mm. publishers, and I learned from that listening. And at some point, Bob just said, go talk to Michael. So I was then meeting with lawyers, managers, publishers, musicians, and uh, that was the beginning. And uh, I guess you could say, let's see, I worked there for a period of time, and then I went to Geffen, and then I went back to Electra, and then I went to Geffen, and that's about 20 years right there. And then I went to Chris Blackwell's label, Palm Pictures, from about 2000 to 2004, and then I felt like I was kind of done, 
records weren't selling like the they used to. It was the beginning of like the internet and stuff, and okay. I just didn't feel it anymore. So I decided, oh, I'm going to be a photographer. So I started taking pictures. All right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like the the beginning of that and that part of the documentary. How it really all started to the trajectory of just you having a conversation and you being this aspiring young kid to want mm-hmm. to have a job and. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure there are a lot of people that can relate to that. It took me a while to really understand that. It's not always you meet you, this a scheduled interview or a scheduled appointment or sometimes it's just a happenstance conversation Correct. if you put yourself in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. So were you in the right place at the right time to meet Metallica? That, is, that, is that an understatement? Uh, not necessarily an understatement, but... Um... I was aware of all the music happening in the metal underground. Um, a very at a very early stage, I would say Johnny Z became a colleague of mine. Johnny and his wife Marsha ran Megaforce Records. Okay, they had a couple of records out: Raven, Metallica, Anthrax, and I. Uh, I think John was looking for a major to distribute his independent releases. But I'm going to backtrack just for a minute. Before I started at Electra, I saw Metallica at L'Amour in Brooklyn with my friend Phil Cavano, who was probably still then in a band called Shrapnel, and later was in and has been in Monster Magnet. Oh, okay. And so we flipped out, and uh, I just thought this was like the greatest thing ever. Uh, fast forward now, I'm, I am at Electra. Uh, oh, God, I tell this story all the time, and I always forget stuff. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I, I heard... Kill them all, and I lost my mind. Um, John, Johnny Z, wanted me to sign Raven. And um, I just said, well, uh, okay, well, why don't we do this? Let's make a demo. So I gave them $5,000. They gave me back five songs. I thought, oh, this is really good stuff. But I had heard Metallica, so that was the problem. And not necessarily a problem, but I didn't want to sign Raven anymore. But that was okay. In the end, they wound up at Atlantic Records, and... um, I wound up signing Metallica summer of 84. At first, John and the label, his label, were not happy. Um, but, you know, we finessed the whole situation and money talks. And uh, in the end, it just worked out. And it worked out for the best for everybody. Clearly. Yes. All these years later. Oh, absolutely. You know, here we are, 35, 36 years later, and we're talking about Metallica. And because they are people who are so dedicated to their craft and just... F- did what they wanted to do, um, they're still out there playing stadiums. Yeah. And they're more fabulous than ever. And James is an extraordinary front man, always has been. Not the same beast that he was in 83, but a different animal now, a more mature animal where, you know, he really knew then, but even more so now, how to relate to an audience and how to rouse up the crowd and um you know they're one of the greatest bands in the whole world i'm not going to argue that i don't think there are many people that that would regardless of the, your favorite genre sure and, and and with that you know now i i feel in 2020 the the market is so oversaturated with everything mm-hmm. we could talk about you know w- with labels and bands and how to promote yourself podcasting geez uh but what was it like because you were right on the money with the amount of years ago it was, because I was born in 83, I'm sorry. So what was the music scene like in 83, 84 for Metallica, where that was rare? They were, I got to imagine, did they come off scary? Because, you know, we, 
you know, you had Alice Cooper, but this was a more aggressive music that really wasn't mainstream yet. Mm, well, back then it wasn't mainstream at all. But when right. you talk about Alice Cooper, that was uh, I don't know, a little more traditional rock and roll with I mean, looks theatrics. wise. I mean, like looks wise. Well, looks wise, they were twenty-one year olds right. who wore, you know. Faded jeans and T-shirts, had long hair, and uh, they were relentless on stage. There was nothing scary about them. And when you saw them back there, back then, people related to them because they really were that charismatic on stage. People, they had that like wow factor about them. So people were just like insanely attracted to them and the music was extraordinary it's like there was nothing the matter with that record kill them all no it's a brilliant brilliant piece of music you know from beginning to end so when you were hearing that music back then um you were just loving it and you know back then uh it, it wasn't for the radio so um there was a lot of trading of cassettes back then of all types of bands. There were flyers being handed out, people saying, come see my band. And, you know, back then there was Metallica and Testament and Anthrax and Metal Church and Flotsam and Jetsam. There were a whole host of these young bands coming out at the same time. Slayer, uh, uh, Creator, mm. um, Voivod, <laughs> one of my favorite bands. Um, so there was so much happening that, you know... We were all out every night hearing music. Even though you were out all yes. night hearing music, it's not like um, people know, okay, where can I go to hear metal? They go to a satellite radio. They go on online or whatever. Well, now they do. Now they do. But back then, again- It was, it, it, it was word of mouth. It, it was talking to your best friend saying, are we going to Lamore in Brooklyn tonight? Uh, what's at- CBGB tonight, you know, and stuff like that. Like I said, it was word of mouth. It was trading music. It was uh, handing out flyers. And that's how it all got around. So it was all created an incredible scene. If it was all word of mouth, Mm -hmm. um, then as far as in regards to Metallica, did the word of mouth reach other people before it it, it hit you? Yeah, it was already kind of happening. People were talking about them because of Kill, it, Kill Em All and a, a demo that was going around. So people were trading that Metallica demo. Um, and once you saw them, you only had to see them once to know that these guys were brilliant. They were doing something totally different that didn't sound like anything else at all. And uh, people it blew their mind. They just loved it. Was there a bidding war? No, there wasn't really a bidding war. Uh, I think once people found out I was interested in them, the other A&R people wanted to talk to them. But, uh, you know, right after Roseland, that next day, I went backstage that night. I said, guys, you got to come to my office. I want you in my life. Uh, <laughs> I think you'll, uh, Electro would be perfect for you. And you know what? The next day they showed up in my office. I ordered Chinese food and beer, <laughs> and I gave them every cool Electra cassette, because remember, it's the 80s, <laughs> and vinyl, and they loved it. And, you know, I was like 23 years old, 24 years old. They were 21 years old. They couldn't believe that I was an a- 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 R person for <laughs> major, a major label. Uh, Electra's part of Time Warner. And okay. um, I think they felt like I would do the right thing for them okay. if they signed. And at that same time, Q Prime Management was interested in them. So they were saying goodbye to Megaforce Records and they were saying hello to Electra Records and Q Prime Management. 
And right after that, everything just started. It was like it catapulted. Were they? Because they were. They, of course, they had the um, the the fun nickname of uh, Alcoholica. Oh, of course. Were they? Di- yes. Uh, were they difficult? <laughs> I, I want to say. Were oh, they? No, no, no. They, and you don't have to go into any bad stories sure. because you uh, you know you hear rumors about. Motley Crue would show up, you know, drugged up. Uh, Guns N' Roses would show, and it was hard for the label and the A&R people to rally them around. Not at all. I was young. I understood them. I drank as much as they drank. And, uh, you know, back then, it was always Lars that I was talking to. And uh, he was very clear about the direction of the band. And they were all clear about their direction. So there was never a problem with them at all. Mm. You know, I enjoyed the... um, the interaction all the time with them. And, uh, you know, no, I never had problems with them So they at were all. driven. They had a mission from, oh, the, yeah. from the get-go, yes. I love it. Yeah, oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's clear. You can see that nowadays. And for them to have that, it's one thing to have that vision now when they're an established brand, mm-hmm. right? But to have that when you're so young to this music that isn't mainstream yet, to be that confident in yourself, in your purpose... I, I think that that's what comes across. I'm sure that's what came across to you in, in addition to the music. That well, these guys I, I, are committed. I, I Well, I felt like they were committed, that there was purpose. And the way Lars spoke to me, I just knew, oh, they, they were relentless and in a great way, that uh, they were going to be big. And I thought they were going to be big as well back then. And uh, here we are. I was wondering if you could talk a little sure. bit about, because we rightfully so remember him every year. Uh, and that's at least once a year, but I mean, that's what social media does, I guess. Uh, yes. Cliff Burton. Oh, Cliff Burton. Yeah. I didn't have many interactions with uh, Cliff. He was a lovely person. He was an extraordinary musician, great sense of humor. Um, he always wore those elephant bell bottoms, and I used <laughs> to always tease him about it, and he would be like, Alago, please just you know leave me alone. But it was always in, in, in jest and good fun. Um and, you know, uh, he was, what, 23 years old and just taken from us way too soon. Um, so, no, I really don't have a lot to say. I'm sure there's other people out there who knew him better um, because, remember, it was early days. So it was like more, it was like record company artist relationship. So I would just see them if I went on the road or if they were in the studio. Um, but, you know, they were West Coast. I was East Coast. So it was mostly lots of phone calls with Lars. What about uh, on stage, though? What was their presence? Has that even changed since you first saw them? Well, their presence, they always had presence. That's how I mentioned at the beginning of this interview. They were wildly charismatic. You just saw them and you thought, wow, these guys are extraordinary. They all had a bit of something about them that whenever you see James on stage, then you would look over at uh, Kirk and you would look over back there at Lars and and Cliff was just an extraordinary musician and I think he might have even been a little better than everybody else was at the time um and uh so they were always extraordinary um and of course you know 35 years later they've grown beautifully but they haven't lost that charisma you know I think you gain more character and maturity and your shows become different they're staged there's a lot of stuff going on um whether that's uh pyro or or uh films uh uh just extraordinary staging back then it was raw and in your face it's not that way anymore only because you know you're playing stadiums and eighteen thousand seaters so you got to give the people what they want and it's a 
show. But uh, the guys remain the same, and they look the same, and they dress how they dress, which is <laughs> just like everybody else. And uh, but uh, they're just extraordinary, really. What other bands, I guess, around that time, perhaps that you wanted to sign as desperately as Metallica, but maybe mm. got away from you? Mm. Well, you know, very funny story because right after Metallica, I kind of wanted to sign Megadeth, and uh, <laughs> they had a record out. I think it was on Combat called uh, "Killing Is My Business" and "Business Is Good." Such and I and, and I showed the vinyl to Bob Krasnow, our chairman, and he just thought that was the best album title ever. <laughs> I mean, I don't think he understood the music, but he got uh, Dave's brand of humor and sarcasm. Um, and I had lots of meetings with Dave Mustaine about about them signing to Electra, but in the end, it wasn't really a good idea because there it would have been Dave would have been under the thumb of Metallica, and I don't think that would have been healthy for mm. either of them. So I kind of let that go. And a very dear friend of mine, um, who has since passed, he was an A and R guy named Tim Carr, signed them to Capitol Records. Okay, and you know. They did great, great records there. Uh, but back in the day, uh, I, I loved Slayer. I've loved Slayer from day one. I have no idea why I didn't pursue them like I feel like I should have. Um, but, you know, once they got signed to, I think it was uh, Deaf American back then or Deaf America, uh, I just wound up being a fan and going to all their shows. And I've gone to all their shows up until the very last shows last year. Uh, that were over the top, lots of fire, and louder than ever. And I just love every waking moment of them. Brilliant band. Also, one-of-a-kind type band. Yeah. They're extraordinary. It's really interesting to think about, you know, because I'm assuming everyone listening to this podcast knows that uh, Dave Mustaine was once in Metallica yes. and was kicked out. Sorry. Yeah. So to have those, you know, if, you, if that didn't happen, you know, we wouldn't have these two great bands. Sure. I, I just find that... You know, I guess, these, you know, um, I, everything for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> they I, may not have thought that back then. Sure. But, you know, he was on his own mission, and he also is a terrific front man, and you can't have two front men in a band, so... <laughs> Where were you when Guns N' Roses was happening? You know, like, well, because you mentioned them a couple times in the documentary. I do? You do. You actually just say Guns N' Roses on oh. a list of bands. and oh. It might have been when you're talking about the Ritz, too. That might be one. Sure. So, okay. <laughs> but I know you actually, as I'm watching, I have, I can't help it. I'm like a, a dog, Pavlov's dog, when I hear Guns N' Roses. I'm like, <laughs> you know, okay. I, I, I know. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> so where were you, business, and, and what, what was the buzz you heard about them? Were you interested? In, did you have an opportunity to... To meet them um, when they were up and coming? Um, well, uh, when they were up and coming, um, I met them when they were already signed. Okay. And uh, there was uh, Vicki Hamilton and yeah. Teresa Ensenat who were very, very interested in them and spoke to A&R people at Geffen about signing them. And they wound up getting signed to Geffen Records. So I guess I, I, I didn't meet up with them a lot because there was no reason to. But in 1992... They were on tour with Metallica, or you could say Metallica was on tour with them. So I got to see a lot of wonderful shows and backstage and, you know, just chatting and nothing more, really. Were you on tour with Metallica? That, that um, I didn't whole... go on tour, no. I went to a couple of shows, okay. um, but I had stuff to do in the office. I was always listening to demo tapes every day. I was making other records, and, uh, you know, I just had to be in the office. Do you remember what shows? Because I'm, I'm, that's just a famous tour. Uh, what shows did you go to? What cities do you remember? Oh, probably just East Coast, okay. uh, New York, New Jersey, Boston, Connecticut. 
What went through your mind, though? Because obviously that tour is infamous mm-hmm. as well when mm-hmm. uh, a pyro kind of set, uh, kind of, it did set James Hetfield ablaze. And oh, you know, yeah. Axel was, I don't know, blamed for losing his voice, not you know, fil- uh, continuing the show. That's a whole other ball of wax. But do you remember what went Because he, at the time, was not just your client. Because that's why they're all in your documentary. You can see it's not just business. There's a friendship there. Mm-hmm. So what went through your mind when your, your friend had that happened? happened to, uh, to him do you remember I know it's so you know it was like when i first heard it it was like third party so i just wondered how bad how bad is this really and um it was pretty bad you know and uh, at some point uh john marshall who played with oh maybe was a roadie for metal church or played with metal church came in and stepped in for him uh performing wise he right. didn't sing um but it was awful, you know? I don't know what else to say about it. I don't even know what the and, kind of answer and, and, I was looking for. Right, and thank God, eventually <laughs> it healed. And uh, But he's a, he's a trooper. What are the other... Because there are a lot of things for you to be proud of in your life, and it's not even just career-wise, but what are some other uh, highlights as far as artists that when you first met them and working with them it's like i can't believe I'm, i have this opportunity is this again this young kid from brooklyn oh sure and it's like you know we can talk about metallica all day but like what are some of the other artists that it's like mm-hmm. again you pinch yourself like wow i'm working with this person well someone who i have loved for 39 years is john lyden formerly of the Sex Pistols mm. and Public Image Limited. You know, I met John at the Ritz, um, and I've told this story many a time, that uh, there was a Friday and Saturday in May of 1981. Bow Wow Wow was supposed to come and perform at the Ritz. Uh, Malcolm McLaren was managing them. During the week, uh, Malcolm called me and said, we're not coming. I said, what do you mean you're not coming? The weekend is sold out. He said, well, you know, Annabella is underage. And her mom won't let her travel. I'm like, listen, I'll buy her mother an airline ticket, but they have to come. And uh, he said, well, we're not coming. I said, okay, then you have to return the 50% deposit. I don't remember if he returned the deposit, but now I had to think fast. Because, you know, having a 1,500-seat venue, you can't have that empty on a Friday and Saturday night. Yeah. So I don't remember how I heard that John... Uh, Keith Levine and Jeanette, Public Image Limited, were in town. They were up at Liz Rosenberg's office at Warner Brothers doing a press junket. And I just thought, I'm calling them. Meanwhile, I had didn't know John at all. I just took it upon myself to call her office, and I spoke to John, and um, I said, uh, you know, we have an opening Friday and Saturday. How would Pill like to perform? And they said, "Well, we don't have instruments or anything." I said, "Well, we could use tapes. We could get a. We could rent a Prophet Five synthesizer for Keith to program music in it." And um, they were hesitant. Uh, and finally, at one point in the conversation, I said, "Well, I'll send a car to come up to get the three of you, and please come to my office at the Ritz." And they came to the office, and my friend Danny Fields was the publicist at the time. And I forget the fourth person who was with Pill. I think his name was Ed, and he was their videographer. And we talked for a very long time, and they finally gave in and said, sure, we'll perform. Uh, Little did I know that they wanted to do a kind of performance art piece. Okay. Um, You know, so when people are coming to see John Lydon, Johnny Rotten, whatever you want to call him, or whatever people wanted to call him at that time, you didn't expect performance art. You wanted good, old-fashioned, dirty, 
punk rock. Yeah. Uh, rock and roll. So um, we, the Ritz was infamous for having this beautiful white 30-foot screen. And at one point, they were behind the screen on stage, and there were all these white lights shining on the screen. So you saw them as silhouettes. Now, I thought it was really beautiful, but I don't think anybody was thinking that same thing in the audience because everybody was drinking and thinking, man, I'm going to see Rotten, Leiden. And um, about 18 minutes into the performance, they opened up with Flowers of Romance, which was the album they were promoting at the time. And uh, John taunted and teased the audience and said, we're never coming out from behind this screen. So, you know, whatever. And that's paraphrasing. But uh, then at some point, there were many bottles and I think some chairs being thrown from the balcony on the stage. And we had to stop the performance immediately. And uh, remember, it's 1981 and security didn't really know handle ha- how to handle young people who were jumping off the stage, who were, you know, and all that stuff. So um, the show's over and I went backstage and we kind of... Uh, had a laugh about the whole thing, even though there was nothing funny about it at the moment, but we had a laugh. And um, that's how I met John. And then at some point, fast forward to 1985, um, I knew he was labelless. Virgin Records wasn't putting out um, any more of his records. He had two records out live in Tokyo, and this is what you want, this is what you get. But they were out in Canada and everywhere else but America. So I had a couple of meetings with John, with our chairman, Bob Krasnow, and we wound up signing John. And um, we picked up those two records for North America, and we made that record album with him, the generic record that you know you uh, that Bill Laswell produced. And you saw, when you saw the artwork, it just said album, and the cassette said cassette, and the poster said poster, and it was an extraordinary record. It didn't do big business, but it was uh, critically acclaimed. And uh, at some point, because the deal was so big and um, we just couldn't afford to keep him. Mm-hmm. So business affairs um, asked me to let him go. So I had to let him go. I don't know. We signed him in 85. The record came out. I think we let him go in 86 or 87. But, you know, we never had a bad word with each other, John and I. And it's 39 years later, and I always go see Pill on the road. I adore John with all my heart. And uh, he's an extraordinary person. He's so brilliant. And... um and present day, people still want to talk to him about the Sex Pistols, and he doesn't want to talk about that anymore. He did all that back then. And keep in mind, mm. that also was one record that changed the landscape of rock and roll. The same thing with my signing of Metallica in 84. That changed the landscape of rock and roll, what people were listening to, and everybody wanted their own Metallica back then, but that doesn't happen. Anyway, we're talking about John. So... Anyway, uh, John uh, and I are still friends, and um, like I said, I go see him anytime he performs, and um, I love him. (laughs) No, I do. I love him. So when you ask about uh, artists and uh, who I liked working with or loved working with, he has always been very, very special to me. John Lydon is on the top of my list. My perception of not just loving Sex Pills, Pistols music oh. or pill music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like this guy kind of just gets it. Like mm-hmm. he's just got this great sense of humor. Oh, he does, absolutely. He doesn't pretend to be fake. You oh, know, no. or pretend to be punk. It's like how Metall- uh, Metallica is. I, I didn't. I never got a sense of you're putting on an outfit. Like this is 
just who you are. Mm-hmm. And and you are defining the genre of either punk or metal. You sure. are the embodiment of it. So you're Good getting, way to put it. Absolutely. And you're getting these guys to to speak again on your documentary, uh-huh. getting all of, of Metallica. Sure. Uh, Cindy Lauper uh-huh. as well. I mean, sure. she is... Oh, uh, she's extraordinary, Cindy. Someone else that, yeah. you know, a bucket list to at least just meet. I mean, mm-hmm. how brilliant of a woman is she, Cindy Lauper? She's exactly what you just said. She's brilliant. Cindy, I met a couple times um, when I booked her band Blue Angel at the Ritz. And then life happens and she went her way and I went my way. And But I knew her manager. I know her manager, Lisa Barberis. And back in the day, Lisa was our publicist at Electra, And she was also our publicist publicist at Geffen Records. And Lisa and I stayed in touch over the years. And at one point, Lisa called and said, you know, Cindy is doesn't have a label right now, and uh, she wants to make a dance record. Can you help her? And so Cindy called me, and I said, sure, I'll make a dance record with you. And we found tons of different producers. And I was just in the studio saying yes, no, maybe, and just... Uh, just uh, being an A&R executive, you know? And then she liked our relationship working together. So in 2010, she called again and she said, you know, Michael, in that voice of hers. And, you know, Michael. Right. Uh, <laughs> something like that. Uh, I, I want to make, bl- I, I make a blues album. Okay. And have you ever made a blues album? I said, no, Sin, I never made a blues album. If you? She said, no. I said, good. We're on the same playing field. <laughs> and so we would sit in her kitchen and order Chinese food and listen to... Many, many blues recordings, you know, whether it was we were listening on the computer, we were listening to vinyl, and um, we were searching for the right songs to make this album. And um, a little label called Downtown signed her. It was run by uh, an A&R executive named Josh Deutsch, who's really smart and uh, fabulous as well. I haven't talked to him in a few years, but that was then 2010. So I was her A&R executive for that. I helped put together the songs. Uh, we found her, this producer, Scott Bomar, who was very well known in the Memphis area. He was friends with all the musicians from Al Green's band, from Isaac Hayes's band, and those are the artists and uh, musicians that we used to be on her record, Memphis Blues. Uh, In the end, it got nominated for Best Contemporary Blues Album for a Grammy. We didn't win. Um, It's an honor not just to be nominated. Exactly. It's very nice. not just an honor. (laughs) But I really would have loved that little object. Mm -hmm. But you know what? What that signaled to both of us is that we did a great job. Yeah. And that everybody in the industry knew that. So those were the only two times professionally I got to work with Sin. But I adore her, and I wish I could work with her. I hope I could work with her again sometime in the future. And, you know, because we've always had this really fine relationship, when I asked her to please be in the documentary, she said, absolutely. And you see her in the film, and she's really... Beautiful. She looks great. Wonderful. Oh, really beautiful. I mean, that's a person who takes care of themselves, <laughs> you know? Um, so she said yes, and I was really uh, honored that she said yes. And, and someone else that I, I want to talk about that I'm a big fan of. Uh-oh. Do you, I don't even know what you're thinking. Oh, I don't know either. I don't uh, know why I said, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, did you find White Zombie? Uh, oh, certainly. Okay, because uh, they're they're all in there. You know, obviously mm-hmm. Rob and, and the, Sean, you know, it's, it, that was really cool to see. And uh-huh. so where did you first see White Zombie? Sure. Um, my friend Daniel Ray, who was in Shrapnel back in the day and later on um, worked with the Ramones and Iggy Pop. He played in uh, Masters of Reality. He was the guitarist for Ronnie Spector. Dear friend of mine, also almost 40 years. Back then, he was shopping 
three bands, Circus of Power, Raging Slab, and White Zombie. And, you know, sometimes Rob will tell you something different, but uh, Daniel um, played all three bands for RCA Records. They didn't want White Zombie at all, and nor did White Zombie think they would have been a good fit for RCA. Okay. So Daniel told Sean and Rob about me, that there's a friend of mine who is uh, an executive at Geffen Records, and I want him to come and see you. So I went to go see them in, and I always, I tell this in the movie as well, they played in a little hole in the wall on Lafayette Street under an Asian restaurant. Probably not too far from here. Called Indochine. Okay. No, it's on Lafayette, probably off of Astor Place, walking distance from here. And um, it was just a hole. And uh, they were in the corner, in the back, in the dark, and they were performing. And uh, I didn't hear any songs. But also, once again, there was a charm and a charisma, a charisma that radiated off the stage. And I felt that from Rob. And I thought, oh, my God, these people are way cool. <laughs> they have no songs, but they're <laughs> way cool. And there was also something about them that I knew that if I worked with them and helped them develop... They could be something. And um, we talked for a long time. They would come to my house and we would uh, make uh, white Russians in a blender. Hmm. And we would just sit around and watch movies like Blackula and Get Coffee and uh, all these black exploitation movies back in the day. And I'd go up to Sylvia's in Harlem and get great food. And we would just sit all night in my living room on the floor and just talk about music. And at some point I did sign them. And... um, Oh my God, this is embarrassing. We made that first record with Andy. Help me, producer. Andy Dick? No. no. <laughs> oh my God, I'm mortified right now. I See, do not this know. is this is a problem. This is why I tell you, my brain doesn't work. As long as you get it down in the book and in the movie, you said that you're all good. Andy Wallace. Oh my God. Okay, finally, don't bother looking. Okay. <laughs> um, we loved the producer Andy Wallace. We liked him because of the sound that. Um, one of the Slayer records had, and we thought, well, this is perfect for White Zombie. Um, I had been developing them, and there were songs now, (laughs) and uh, I felt that it was A-OK to put them in the studio. Andy made their record with them. I think my friend Daniel might have mixed that record, or he was responsible for getting White Zombie to me. And uh, so I wound up signing them. And um, at one point, a a wonderful story I don't tell too often, but... uh, we put out the record, and uh, it starts selling, and it stalls at around 180,000 units. Okay. And here I am bragging to everybody, every department at Geffen Records, they're going to be the biggest thing. So everybody was not so happy at one of the marketing meetings that we had, and they were like, yeah, Alago, what are we going to do now? Well, fortunately, I did not have to do anything. What happened was there was a little show on... MTV called Beavis and Butthead. Yeah. And Beavis and Butthead decided that White Zombie were their new favorite band. So they played 1965, Thunder Kiss 1965, relentlessly morning, noon, and night. And between Beavis, them playing that song and Beavis and Butthead 
being huge at the time, the record started selling again, and it catapulted it to at least a million units. And I remember one night at uh, Roseland, Mike Judge came backstage, and we were all, everybody, I think Scott Ian was back there, and maybe Anthrax was playing with, uh, with White Zombie at Roseland. Anyway, there was a ton of us backstage, and we were all going, like, who is this guy? And when he said Mike Judge, everybody flipped out. Huh. Everybody, like, either put their arm out, or I think I put out a napkin for him to make those characters could you please sign this and we didn't want like his autograph we wanted those little characters and he was very gracious and um we just loved meeting him but that was the thing that catapulted that record to a million plus units (laughs) shut up beavis you're ruining it Fire, fire, fire. <laughs> and I would be remiss because you mentioned Please. Uh, Circus of Power. Mm-hmm. Uh, you saw today when I posted the trailer for your documentary, Gary Sunshine commented. Oh, what a love. And Gary's been on the show before. and He has? Because Gary worked on the Guns N' Roses song, Oh My God. Okay. And I don't know it, any of this. this. this is all, and when the, I love the, how this all comes together. I didn't use this phrase at the beginning. I always use six degrees of GNR bacon, you know, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. And you're gonna this is gonna blow oh, your yeah. mind. So we got well, okay. we got Gary Sunshine who <laughs> yes. did Oh My God, which was a one off Guns N' Roses song okay. on the end of days movie soundtrack starring oh. your T shirt, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Really? Look at that. Okay. I don't know. I was impressed by that. I okay. that I was able to connect Wait, all those things. My T shirt or Guns N' Roses or, or Arnold Schwarzenegger? Because Arnold's, I don't even know this movie. End of Days? It was an end of day. I think it came out in 1999. Okay. It was, uh, I guess, an apocalyptic movie. End of Days. Wow. And it was starring Arnold Schwarzenegger on mm. the, the soundtrack. But the Guns N' Roses, when it was, you know, Axel, uh, it was just Axel. And at the time, there was no other official guitarist. I think they were trying out. Dave Navarro was on the track. Uh, but Gary Sunshine did some of the work for the GNR song, wow. Oh My God, oh, on great. the Schwarzenegger movie. Well, we uh, love Gary. So, hi, Gary. Yeah. Gary, uh, I should give him a plug, I because he has a new album. Well, we're plugging. I know. <laughs> so, this one, I want to make sure I get the- Okay, uh, Gary Sunshine, we're looking you up. We're I, Googling you. I know. It's like beers. Not for who you <laughs> are, but for uh, this record that I believe uh, Brando thinks you have out now. <laughs> he does. In it 2020. Out, it came out- uh, A minute ago? Mm, a few months ago. Okay, fine. I think because uh, we were friends on Facebook and oh, beers, picks, and old records. So that, okay, so that's Gary's uh, new album that came out last year. That's a mouthful of a title. Yeah, beers, sure. picks, and old records. It's fun because uh, I follow we your friend, Facebook friends. Uh huh. Nice. I think he's even had like his young daughter come up and sing with him while he oh, plays the guitar. Oh yes, that's so. right. He has a wonderful, lovely, beautiful yeah. family. See all the six degrees of GNR bacon, you know, tying it all together. Oh you know, my god. From- no, wait, wait. Why? How did you? Pull in Kevin Bacon to all this. Well, you've never heard that phrase, six degrees of Kevin Bacon? Oh, probably. Maybe this could, so this could be maybe a. But funny you mentioned Kevin thing. Bacon because I've loved Kevin Bacon from, I don't know, <laughs> since the early 80s. Sure. Yeah. Uh, he was, um, one of my favorite Kevin Bacon movies. Maybe Tremors. <laughs> I don't know oh if my I God. Say that. I love Tremors. Well, it's funny, he was on, on Broadway in a show called Slab boys and sean penn was in that uh production as well but i was so in love with kevin bacon that uh one day i just stood at the stage door with a box of vinyl of everything that was on electro records that was happening at the time and i waited for him (laughs) 
<laughs> and here I am, this crazy young executive waiting for Kevin Bacon at the stage door. And he got there, and there was nobody there but me. <laughs> and we talked for a long time, and he opened up the box in front of me, and he thought, wow, this is so very nice. You didn't have to do this. I said, I know, but I just had to meet you. And he thought that was funny, and uh, I gave him a stack of records and never saw him again. But that's okay. You gotta Love sign, Kevin Bacon. You got to sign the Bacon Brothers. He has a band. The Bacon Brothers. I saw brother. them once or twice when the bottom line still existed on 4th and Mercer. So, uh-huh. that, yeah, that's the... I'm borrowing a phrase yes. because, you know, when I, I first started, and we can just parlay this into talking about how you wanted to shape your your, your new book, mm-hmm. but when I, I I still have a co I mean, I still have a friend, but my former co-host, uh, when he suggested doing that GNR podcast, I'm like, am I going to talk about a band every show? You know, I, that's just not me. So I have built something that's kind of like under an umbrella of Guns N' Roses, where Got it's it. a nucleus and anything that connects with our six degrees of... You know, cross out Kevin, insert GNR bacon, just another mm-hmm. silly phrasing. See, again, I have no producer. It works. It's just me. <laughs> it works. So thank you. Obviously, they let you go off and do what you want. <laughs> uh, people seem and to say what you want. People seem to appreciate it. I well, mean, this obviously... isn't going really well, so I, I love being here. So thank you. No, I appreciate it. So when is, because you can watch sure. the documentary now, it's on Netflix. Oh, what yes. other platforms well, it's is one, it on? Well, you know, I just have to uh, give a small plug. Uh, the documentary has been on Netflix almost three years now. I know, right. Come September 2020, it'll be three years. They just re-upped it, and that's incredible. That is. They never do that with films, with documentaries. You see a documentary for a period of time, and then it just kind of disappears. It's in and out, so that's yeah, why so, I want to let people so know that is, it's there oh, right it's now. still there. Yeah. And the beauty of all that is that we recently got uh, um, added to Amazon Prime Video. Nice. So, Netflix, Amazon Prime Video. And, you know, what happened was... Um, there's a little book comp- there is a little book company called Backbeat Books and they saw my documentary and they loved it and they wanted to know if I still had more stories to tell. So they reached out to you. Yes, I yeah, oh, I didn't reach out to them. Wow, cuz you didn't even want to write a book. I mean, <laughs> no, I, didn't, I wasn't thinking, thinking about, about it. it. Okay. I was still thinking about, you know, rocking and rolling and uh who was I going to work with next and uh I found a little band from South Florida called Ether Coven who are heavy as F U C K. They sound it. Oh no, <laughs> Ether Coven. Yeah, Mike Gitter and at uh, Century Media signed them. Their second record just came out. It was produced by Eric Rattan from Morbid Angel. So it oh. is super yeah. duper heavy. Uh, it's brutal. But you know, there are majestic qualities about that record. But that's not what you were asking me about. But I love <laughs> Peter and I love Ether Coven. So they always get a plug. Um, so Backbeat Books came to me and asked me if I wanted to write a book, if I had stories. And I have lots of stories. You know, you can't sure. tell everything in a 77 minute feature film. It just doesn't work that way. So you give the people what you think they want, and then there's always more. And you know what? I had more. So um, my book, um, over 200 pages, and I didn't know that it was going to turn into uh, short stories or uh, just these small chapters. It just worked out that way. So like, you know, chapter one is Brooklyn. So, you know, when you go to Brooklyn, you kind of know what you're going to get when you read about Brooklyn. If you go to... um, you know, Metallica, The Ritz, um, Never Fall in Love with a Hooker. Um, well, do I ask about that chapter? No, you have to read the book. Okay. Come on, honey. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, th- I think the last two chapters in my book are Blanche, my mom, who passed away mm. two years ago, and Gratitude, because I sum everything up with gratitude. You know, I lived through yeah. all the insanity, the drinking, the drugs, the health situations, and, you know... 
I just love being in this world, as crazy as this world is these days. I know. You know, I'm grateful for being here. I'm grateful for being on your show. I'm grateful for everything that gets put in front of me. And I'm here to help people. And um, so the point of all of this is they asked me about a book. I said, yes, I got a co-writer, Laura Davis Channon. And um, I made this book. It's called I Am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death. Nice. Beating yeah. death. Okay. Oh, truth. Um, so uh, it, it officially comes out March 31st. Great. Um, it's on Amazon to pre-order. Um, but I have a book event coming mm, two Fridays from now. Friday night, March 6th, 7 to 10 p.m. at Bowery Electric oh, nice. on the Bowery. And I'll be there selling books and uh, signing books. And two friends of mine, uh, a band from Long Island who are in my documentary called Borgo Pass. Yeah. They're doing an acoustic set. Nice. And my dear friend Keith Roth, who is a DJ at W. R.A.T., The Rat in New Jersey. Okay. He's a singer, songwriter. He plays a lot with David Johansson, Cherry Curry from The Runaways, and he's going to do an acoustic set as well. So Friday, March 6th, at Bowery Electric, there's going to be a fun night. That's fun. Because yeah. we, we, I mean, I have listeners all over, but I've obviously oh, how have wonderful. listeners in New York and people who sure. travel. And Well, come on down if you're in New York City and you want to experience uh, the Bowery and you want to experience uh, just a great night of fun rock and roll. And it's funny... Uh, and books. Borgo Pass was probably uh-huh. one of, in addition to Metallica, I, I got started with radio. We were talking about how you got started with music. I sure. got started in radio. Uh, since you're a local guy, I went to Hofstra. Uh-huh. So their their radio station, I had a heavy metal show. Oh, wow. And you're, it's in college, so you're only allowed to play whatever they have. But okay. there was Metallica and Borgo Pass. Were oh, my God. Together. The first Fantastic. Bands, uh, that I would you know, put They're on the radio. They're both in my documentary. <laughs> which is just uh, amazing. And I, yeah. you know, the book, I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, it's, it's really, you know what? I have to say, it really is good. I'm very happy with how it turned out. And like I said, you know... It's all these short stories. So if like you see in the table of contents something that says uh, uh, Game Changer and you're wondering like, hmm, what's this all about? You can go to Game Changer and it's a complete thought. I couldn't tell you what that chapter is all about at the moment, but it's it's stuff like that, that if you see a chapter and has an interesting title, um, you just go there and start reading and, you know, it will have a complete thought for you. But I hope you start at the beginning and finish the whole book. That even being said, with, yes. with the documentary and with the book, uh-huh. do you have anything that you want a, a viewer or a reader to specifically take away? And I may I suggest, an, or uh, guess rather, is it gratitude? Or is it just, I want to share these, these fun stories, these are my stories, am I overthinking it? Is there any sort of No, you're takeaway? not overthinking it all. The takeaway, I think, with me always is uh, I want to share my life in rock and roll. I want to let people know that I had an addiction and a recovery, and uh, I did recover because uh, I didn't want to die. Um, how I overcame uh, AIDS, I have no idea. But, you know, I was meant to be on this planet and just uh, be of service to people who are in need and just to rock and roll, you know? That's the spirit of it all. Everything for me is under the umbrella of rock and roll my whole life. So uh, the takeaway is um, be kind, be grateful, uh, help other people. And if you see me on the street, say hello. Uh, We can take pictures together. And um, please come to my book signing because it's going to be a lot of fun and I'll be meeting people that I've not met before and I'll be seeing people that I haven't seen for a very long time. 
One last question, sure. and, and you don't uh, have to uh, respond to this if you don't want to, because okay. we're talking about sobriety and getting over addiction. Uh-huh. I've been, I haven't had a drink in over four years. Oh, how wonderful. And recently, James Hetfield uh, had his first performance since coming out of rehab, which is wonderful. Yes, it is. Do you guys talk? I do speak to James. Uh, not so often. Um, I speak to him mostly backstage at shows. And uh, I'm sorry that this setback had happened, but uh, he's a smart cookie and he got over it. And let's hope he continues to stay clean and sober. Um, you know, I, it was killing me, the drink and the drugs. So I've been sober coming up on 13 years and it's it's such an incredible life. You show up for your life. You're yeah. responsible. People know that they can count on you. Yeah. And how wonderful all that is. You're absolutely right. Yes. Because I was in a bad place and it's great for mm-hmm. people like you, success stories like mm-hmm. yours, that you share it. And that's what I try to do here on this podcast, share it so somebody else who is suffering can hear it. it's not just me i think that was always the most important thing where i felt i was so different mm-hmm. i'm never going to change uh this bad stuff is going to continue oh, so no, many other people feel mm-hmm. that way yes. and well, they keep come in out of mind it. you don't have to suffer and the big thing is to ask for help yeah and when you ask for help there's always someone out there who wants to help you and um when you ask for help and you're really clear that you are sick and tired of all your shenanigans One becomes clean and sober. And like I said a moment ago, when you become clean and sober, you become a responsible person. You become a person who shows up. You become a person who helps other people. And isn't that what it's all about anyway? Yeah. It is. It is. And uh, it all comes full full circle uh, because the other day I was producing Q1043 down the hall, the morning Uh show. And I don't, I mean, I only had been filling in. I'll continue to fill in just uh, every now and then. So I'm not going to be on the air consistently. But I say something on the air. I'm talking about probably Guns N' Roses. And my therapist texts me. <laughs> and she's like, I heard that. So I'm like, I, I, yeah, I've been in therapy for like over 10 years. And Good. she was the one that Very saved helpful. me. So that's why I there always appreciated go. what Metallica did, seeing a group uh-huh. therapist. Sure. So that's a, you know one of the reasons why I love them. But Big thing, asking for help. Yeah, for and sure. And you know what? When you ask, you usually get it. If you're ready, Michael Alago, this was a, a pleasure. Oh, and, uh, thank you so much. You know, I'm going to keep being here, up to date with your book, and obviously, I'm going to share and promote the hell out of that when it's uh, officially on the shelves. Lovely. What a nice guy. If you haven't seen the documentary yet, after this conversation, if you still haven't seen it, do it. It'll only enhance this episode, and the documentary is great. There is there, there's so much to watch now on Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and all these places. Isn't that how, it's like kind of how back in the day, Michael found out about Metallica. It's word of mouth. Sure, there are the documentaries that are in your face, you know, making a murderer, you know, things of that nature. But otherwise, it's word of mouth. So I'm telling you to go watch who the fuck is that guy. <laughs> and uh, the book should be great. Wonder what other stories he has yet to, to share. Uh, but speaking of books... Um, I want to want to mention this comment that I got. I have to share it with all of you. It was from when I posted episode 170, and this is when I did uh, two interviews uh, on one episode. One was from uh, Chelsea Urson. She's a podcast called Dear Young Rocker, and the other interview I did was author Mark Bego, who did a book about Elton John called Rocket Man. So on that thread on Twitter recently, uh, 80s girl 1618. Sounds like an AOL screen name, but this is Twitter. 
She made this comment. This is the fourth book I bought after listening to at the AFD show. Would love at Matt Sorum to come to talk to you about his upcoming autobiography. Not only is it just flattering and just great that you, anyone listens to this podcast, I'm always amazed when I, it, and it happens all the time, just people finding this podcast and people talking about listening to the show and uh, from episode one. But uh, point being is that, yeah, there are people who come on to talk about Guns N' Roses just to have a good time, but there are people who come on the show, well, because they have something to promote. Even Michael Alago, he was excited to talk to me and was happy to give me his time. But yeah, he has a documentary to promote and, and a book as well. So by tagging, by, by responding to that, it's letting Mark know, Mark Bega, who wrote that Elton John book, that it was worthwhile for him to come on my show. From tagging, to tag Matt Sorum, it's also letting him know that I have worthwhile listeners. It's not just to shoot the shit about JNR, which we'll see what he does in the upcoming, uh, I guess, months and leading up to his book uh, when he does a promotional tour and does more interviews promoting his book. And we'll see if he comes on this podcast. I, of course, have tried reaching out to Matt Sorum, and we'll see what happens. And I, I say that with now a bit of optimism because, well, we got Gilby Clark. It took me a while to get Gilby. And, you know, yes, he has now something to promote, but as you could tell, but those of you who listened to the the interview, which many of you did, it's doing quite well. Thanks to Blabbermouth for, for picking up an excerpt, uh, what Gilby had to say about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, if you missed it, just to very quickly paraphrase, he said you should care about the Hall of Fame just as much as you care about going to Denny's. <laughs> hey, I like their hash browns, so I get kind of excited to go to Denny's. Letting Gilby know, I think all those comments people have left that that they are excited for new Gilby Clark music after listening to my episode is another great message to pass along to the people who come on this podcast and to potential future guests that I'm trying to get. So more of that, more of that. Tag the people that you want to come on and, and, and let them know, hey... I listened to this episode. I found your album because of Appetite for Distortion. Oh, I, I read your book because of Appetite for Distortion. Tag these people on Twitter, on Facebook, and Instagram. Let them know that you heard them or you want them, of course, on the AFT show. All right? I'll let you know the next episode is going to feature Tom Kiefer, former singer of Cinderella, of course. And Tom, uh, I can't wait to speak with him. He has uh, a new album out, and just uh, just gauging from the audience reaction from you on social media, I know many of you are excited to hear from him as well. And also on that episode, we are going to hear from two young men who make up a band called Bleaker. They are an alt-rock, uh, pop-rock band from, from Canada, and they are influenced by Guns N' Roses. Uh, their sound may not be, but they are them as musicians— and his people uh, have a lot of GNR influence and, and fandom all over them. So we're going to hear from them as well on the next episode, tagged with uh, with Tom Kiefer. But meanwhile, uh, if you want to keep up to date with the show and any future guests and just uh, have great conversation, Appetite for Distortion on Facebook, facebook.com slash the AFD show, or on Twitter at the AFD show, Instagram, Appetite for Distortion, and just however you find us, you can always leave a comment. Uh, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, 
Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You can always leave a comment. And you know what? Uh, Gmail as well. The, the AFD show at Gmail. Basically anything short of Carrier Pigeon. That's how you can reach me. So that does it for this episode of Appetite for Distortion. When will you see the next one? Well, the words of Axel Rose concerning Chinese democracy. I don't know if soon is the word, but you'll see it. Thanks to the lame-ass security, I'm going home.